0: I was in junior high school, I became infected with a virus that first began in England in 1963. It took the world by storm, actually, Uh, and it first came to Minnesota on a documented day. It was on August 21st, 1965, when 25,000 Minnesotans were exposed to it. It was a pandemic that officially ended on April 10th, 1970. However, the effects of it are still shown today. Case in point, uh, I got the bug uh, in the mid-1990s when I was a, a junior high student. It came in many waves. It was usually called the early period, the middle period, and the late period. However, this particular virus is not one that I or anyone else have ever sought for a vaccine or an inoculation. In fact, the only cure to this particular virus is more exposure. I'm talking, of course, of the British invasion, the Beatles. <laughs> Got you there, didn't I? You know, from the first time that they released their first album to the day that they broke up was only seven years. I mean, mean, that's crazy to think about, that it was only seven years and everything that they had accomplished. But they were arguably the most popular band ever in history, even up to this point. Their songs uh, hit the the range of human emotion from uh, young love, you know, I want to hold your hand, uh, to friendship. Friendship. I get by with little help from my friends. Or, or maybe it's even something like a, like a breakup uh, of the song, Hello, Goodbye. Uh, or maybe it is just existentialism, uh, the song called The Fool on the Hill, or uh, A Day in the Life, or Octopus's Garden, which I, I still have no clue what that, what that song is about. Uh, or I Am the Walrus, or Bungalow Bill, who knows what in the world uh, those songs are even about. But one song that doesn't get as much attention as it probably should uh, has become an anthem for the lonely and for the, for the destitute. In fact, if you took a trip, uh, you can't right now, obviously, but if you were to take a trip over to Liverpool, England, in the heart of the city, you would see uh, this statue. Uh, I'll have a picture of it uh, behind me in just a second here. And uh, it depicts a lonely woman sitting on a bench, looking down in sorrow. Her name? Eleanor Rigby. It's a song about two uh, fictitious people whose stories are all but common. Eleanor Rigby goes about her days looking out the window for someone to come and relieve her sense of loneliness and her sense of isolation and despair. Second, it's about a priest named Father McKenzie who continues week in and week out to write sermons for a church which nobody shows up for anymore. He's all alone going through the drudgery of life, alone and miserable. And the chorus asks this dystopian question. All the lonely people, where do they come from? All the lonely people, where do they belong? The answer is, is that they're everywhere. They're in our text. They're in this room. Maybe they're watching at home, quietly suffering. Today, we're going to look at one such Eleanor Rigby. Her name was Leah. Her story starts, uh, last week we saw her story begin when her cousin Jacob came to town to visit, and immediately he fell in love with her younger, much more attractive sister, Rachel. Her father Laban agreed that if Jacob would work for him for seven years, that he could marry Rachel, her younger sister, a deal that he gladly and joyfully fulfilled However, when the time came for the wedding night, Jacob did not give Rachel as a bride to Jacob, but rather he tricked him into marrying his older, son, or his older daughter, Leah. And Jacob was furious. He didn't love or even seem to like Leah. And so for the exchange of another seven years of work, Jacob married Rachel And as we approach our text today, we're going to see how Jacob viewed Leah. He viewed her as not something to delight in, but rather as a sideshow whose only purpose is to make babies and fulfill God's promise to expand God's people. Where do all the lonely people come from? They come from homes like this. Maybe not as the tragic results of polygamy, but more so from the tragic results of living in a fallen and sad world. Many of us are Eleanor Rigby. Many of us are Leah. We are silently suffering, hurting, lonely, Rejected, brokenhearted, anxious, depressed, and in need of hope. But when we come out of the other side of this passage this morning, we're going to find out that God loves people like Leah. Those who are rejected by the world find a place of acceptance in the arms of Jesus. Those who are brokenhearted or, in, or are anxious and in need of hope find rest and comfort in the Lord through the gospel and through the accomplished works of Jacob's descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. So there's two things today that we need to take note of in what this text says. And that is, firstly, we need to rest in the God who cares for the lonely and the brokenhearted, rest in the god who cares for the lonely and the brokenhearted verse 31 says when the lord saw that rachel was hated he opened her womb but rachel was barren so we need to resist again the temptation to put our understanding of our word hated into the context here Hated here does not mean that she was despised as we typically think about it, but it means to disregard. It means to pass over. Or perhaps a better translation is how it's translated in areas such as Deuteronomy 21 or Proverbs chapter 30 when it translates this word as to be loved or failed to be loved. Leah was not loved. Leah here is in a very painful place. God has designed marriage to be an institution between one man and one woman, and you can see how polygamy ends up working itself out here in this text, but one man and one woman who delight in each other, who desire one another. But in this case... Jacob simply looks at Leah and simply looks past her. She may have a ring on her finger, but there's not a place for her in Jacob's heart. His desire, his heart is for Rachel, her younger, more attractive sister, his other wife, she, Leah, has learned to sing David Bowie's Nature Boy thousands of years before it was ever written. The greatest thing that you'll ever learn is just to be loved and to be loved in return, but yet she will never be loved in return from this, um, by this man. And as much as she loves him, nothing but conflict and competition come her way from her sister. Jacob may not see Leah as beautiful or as desirable, but there is one who does, the Lord. Look again at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So whereas Jacob had no regard for Leah, God did and he showed his loving care by, by opening up her, her womb and giving her children and closing the womb of Rachel. Now, this is not to say that, that those of us that might suffer from infertility, it's not a result of, of sin or something that we've done, just that in this particular story, in this particular case, this is what God did. God is showing his care for Leah by passing over Rachel and providing Leah with the comfort of children. In verses 32 through 35, Leah shows that she recognizes God's goodness to her. And you can see her faith here by the way that she names her children. Notice, firstly, that her firstborn son is named Reuben, which means, look, a son. And at his birth, she says in verse 32, The Lord has looked upon my affliction. You see, uh, Leah recognizes here that in her loneliness and her rejection and her alienation from her husband, she knows that there is a God who sees her and sees her suffering. Friends, this here is the God of the Bible who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who saw her heartbreak, and this is a God that sees your heartbreak too. He sees every one of your troubles. He sees every tear that falls from your eye. Do you know it? Reuben would be a constant reminder to her of God's omniscience, his all-knowingness. His, her understanding and declaration of God's goodness here are expanded with the birth of her son, Simeon with his name she declares that not god not only saw her affliction but he also hears her cry in the lament she says in verse 33 she says because the lord has heard that i am hated he has given me this son also god sees god hears this is who he is And we can see this principle going all the way back uh, to Genesis chapter 21 when Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of Abraham's home and they are left to be destitute, to die out in the wilderness by themselves. And as Hagar is ready to see her son perish from hunger and for thirst, she, she leaves him and she walks away from him and she cries out to the Lord. Verse 16 says, and as she sat opposite of him, she lifted her voice and wept. And then verse 17 leads us right to this truth once again of God's character. It says, God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now, I don't know what you might be going through today. You might be really struggling with depression. You might be struggling with anxiety. You might be beside yourself right now. You may be like Hagar. You may be a a single mother left to fend for herself and for her child. Maybe you're in a marriage that you're not cared for. Maybe you are in An impossible situation that seems absolutely hopeless. We need to look at at Leah and Simeon and remember that the Lord hears your cry, He hears your prayers. His heart is magnetically charged to be attracted to the heart that is broken. So God continues to show his love and care for her through the birth of Levi, which means attached. Now verse 34 shows that she is still holding on to hope that her husband might be attached to her when she says, now this time... May my husband, will my husband be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. But we know this doesn't happen. So she settles for being attached to the Lord. When things don't go your way, when life lets you down, when friends betray you, abandon you, we have a God that will not let us go. And for that we can praise Him, which is why Leah named her fourth son Judah. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. And when we see the goodness of God in our affliction, and when we see God's goodness in our suffering, we can praise Him through the tears, through the pain, and through the struggle but the question is how does this work out practically? What does this actually look like in our lives? It's really easy to say praise God when life hurts, but it's much more difficult to employ it. It's no help of us for us or any of us if I were to simply say, you know, why don't you be like, be like Leah? You know, when she was hurting and when she was sad, she just simply went to God as if it's something that's really easy to do. I'm not interested in religious platitudes, and you shouldn't be either. Rather, I want us to zoom in on what Leah was hoping in. When she gave birth to Judah, it was from a heart of praise. But more than a heart of praise, it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Decades later, when this dysfunctional family all comes back together in the land of Egypt and Jacob is about to breathe his last, he blesses all of his boys much in the same way that his father Isaac had blessed him. But for Judah, this son of praise, uh, this is what Jacob says in Genesis chapter 48 verses 9 and 10, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies." Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until trouble comes to him, until tribute comes to him, boy, that was a faux pas, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, it's through the birth of Judah that Leah was looking toward the one who would come from her descendants, who would take on this regal, this victorious role, but not before he would experience life and suffering as we do. And Jesus, God in the flesh, comes from the line of Judah, lived as a man of sorrows, who the Bible says was acquainted with grief, who experienced loneliness, who experienced rejection, who experienced abandonment as we do, yet even to a greater extent. When he was at his last moments, having a hard time breathing on the cross, his friends ditched him. His Father, God the Father, even abandoned him for a bit. We can remember him crying out the words that come from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nobody that Jesus had at that moment. He died utterly alone and in despair. Why? So that after his resurrection and after his ascension... He, as Hebrews tells us, could sympathize with our every weakness. See, it's one thing to go to God in our pain and loneliness. It's another thing to go to to the God who knows it firsthand and can minister to us in our need So we should rest in the God who has a heart for the rejected, a God who has a heart for the brokenhearted, the lonely, because he knows what it's like. It's just as that famous hymn says, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. So we need to rest in the God who cares for the lonely and for the brokenhearted. Second of all, we need to put God first in our life. Put God first in your life. Stress and conflict will always bring to the surface the best and the worst in our character. We've seen over the past number of months with the, with the, with the COVID uh, crisis, how people have reacted to the stresses, the unique stresses that we've had during this pandemic. We've seen it in our personal lives as well. When stress comes to the home, In the workplace, there are character traits that we never knew we had that come brimming to the surface. And many times what comes to the surface are not random behaviors, but reactions to secret or unknown idols that are being threatened. Genesis 29 through 30, we learn how Leah and Rachel respond to these idols in uh, in their hearts. And now here we are, thousands of years between them, but the human heart and the human condition has not changed at all. Let's first look at Rachel. She may be beautiful, but she's a piece of work. Look here in, in chapter 30, verse 1. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. A great wife, right? Real encourager. She already has the affection of Jacob, she's the favorite wife, but yet it's not enough. When she sees that Leah is having children left and right and and she's not, she becomes irrational. And it can't just be chalked up to something as simple as sibling rivalry. What is happening here is Rachel's idol of power and victory is coming to a head. It's manifesting now in the manipulation of Jacob. Read it again. Give me children or I shall die. The ironic thing about this is, is that in a few short chapters, in chapter 35, Rachel dies in childbirth. And Jacob rightly won't have any of it. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It's not realizing that she's not getting anywhere with him. She's going to do what many of us do when push comes to shove, is that we will take matters into our own hands, even in ways that are not even close to what God wants for us. She takes a play right out of Jacob's grandmother's playbook. She takes her handmaid, Bilhah, and she gives her as a wife to Jacob to be a surrogate mother for her, so that whatever children would come from Bilhah would be attributed to her. This is really messy. And it gets even worse here. Bilhah gets pregnant twice without any complications. And Rachel's response is telling of what is actually going on in her heart. Look at verses 6 through 8. Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. So let's cut through all the religious jargon and vernacular here and see what's really going on. There isn't much evidence here That she's really interested in magnifying the Lord through her children and expanding the kingdom of God. Rather, it shows that she is much more interested in winning. These children are pawns for one-upping her sister. And there's no hint here that she wants the best for her sister and for her nephews. She wants vindication. Having the affection of Jacob is not enough. She wants total power. In God's providence, Dan and Nephtali are the only children that Bilhah is able to conceive. Leah has also ceased bearing, so she gives her handmaid Zilpah to Jacob as another wife. So he's got four now. Uh, there's nothing pretty about this story here. Zilpah conceives two more children, uh, Gad and Asher, and now the score is Leah 6, Rachel 2. And this is a problem. Realizing that her options are getting very, very limited and desperately low, Rachel then resolves to superstition. In verse 14, Reuben, who is Leah's firstborn son, he finds these mandrakes. And, and you can go and do a Google search on the many uses of mandrakes i don't know why anyone would use them for anything but one of the more ancient uses for mandrakes was uh number one an aphrodisiac and number two uh even more primitive they believed that it it cured infertility and so rachel wants to have these mandrakes in order to maybe cure her or give them to jacob so that he would be attracted to her and and uh, so, she, so she, she makes this deal with her sister and says, hey, look, if you give me those mandrakes, I will let you have, uh, it's so weird, I will let you have your husband tonight, or my husband. It, it, it's so bizarre. And, you know, Leah, okay, fine, here, have these mandrakes. I don't need them anyway. And, and uh, she trades them with Leah, and guess what happens? Leah gets pregnant, not Rachel. Verse 18, God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So do you see what's happening here? Every single attempt that Rachel is making here to have power over her sister is met with resistance from the Lord. A surrogate won't work. Superstition won't work. All of us are gripped by something. There is something in every single one of our eyes and in every single one of our hearts that, that grabs our attention and constantly wants more and more. And when it is threatened, we go into defense mode. And defense mode is never pretty. When our idols are in jeopardy, we fight back. We strive in our own strength. We will ignore God or maybe even use his name to get what we want. And we might be successful for a time. But as we saw last week, it will catch up to us. God says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory, I give to no other. Another way you could say it is, I don't share that with anybody. That's mine. Nor my praise to carved idols. If you are his, he will make you Run out of options until you come running back to him. It ended up happening to Rachel. In verse 22, Rachel puts down her guns and she finally surrenders to the Lord. And it says, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph Joseph. Saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And we see here also that Leah is not exempt in any means from the tyranny of idolatry. We've talked about our faith, but what happens when our faith and our idols clash? The Lord draws us back to him. Look again in chapter 29, verses 34. Uh, 32 through 34, even in in the Lord's obvious favor and care, it's obvious that Leah deeply desires Jacob's affection. Is it wrong for a wife to desire her husband's affection? No. It's good. That's what marriage is supposed to be. However, Idols are rarely bad things in and of themselves. Usually, idols are good things that we give an inordinate or uh, attention or priority to. And Leah here, the rightful desire that she has for her husband, has gotten the best of her. Look in verse 1. Reuben is... Born in the hope that now my, hu- sorry, verse 31, now my husband will love me. Levi is born at the hope in verse 34, this time my husband will be attached to me because I gave him three sons. And she quickly realizes that there is no amount of children that she could ever give to Jacob that is ever going to draw his attention to. Her So God, what he does is he woos her back and helps her get to the point where she finally realizes that her identity is not rooted uh, in whether or not her husband loves her. Her identity is, not, is, is rooted rather uh, in the Lord himself. It is not bound up in whether or not she is beautiful in Jacob's eyes. Her identity is bound up in the fact that she is beautiful in the Lord's eyes. For in the Lord she has a treasure that is far greater worth than the affection of any man. She has, the, she has the one who simply sees her worth and her beauty, not because of anything that she has done, not because of anything she has said, not because of a simple amount of money that she has, but simply because he is good. And that's how it is with God. He doesn't accept us or love us because of who we are or what we've done or how beautiful we are or how much money we've accumulated or who he associates us with or he accepts us and loves us in spite of those things. He demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to die on a cross and take away the ugliness of our lives and gives us hope and to give us new lives that point away from the vain beauty that we see here and rather point to the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And through faith in that man, through faith in Jesus Christ, he can make our lives new again, a new sense of purpose, a new sense of beauty. And through Jesus and him alone, we can not only put God first in our lives and cast aside those idols that cling so closely and make this life messy, but we can also find a God who draws near to the brokenhearted, who draws near to the sad, draws near to those with a heavy heart, He tends to the Eleanor Rigby's as well as the blatant idolaters in the same way, by his grace, through faith. All the lonely people, where do they come from? They come from everywhere. But in Jesus Christ, they have a place to go place where they are welcomed, a place where they will find love and rest. Friends, let's go to him today. Let's pray. Father, all of us here are struggling with so many different things. Maybe our families are in shipwreck right now. Maybe we've lost a loved one and we are really struggling in our grief. Maybe, Lord, just the the turn of the seasons or the ugliness of the election we have coming up or the getting run down from this whole health crisis for so long. Lord, every single one of us are needy this morning and every single one of us try filling it in, in, in various ways, Lord. We have this, this bucket in our lives that, that needs to be filled, but Lord, we just keep filling it with things that drain out. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us with you, that you would empty out our idol factory and that you would come in and that you would dwell in us richly. And Father, that here this morning, every single one of us would leave this room changed. Lord, I thank you that you see us not because we're beautiful, but because your glory is beautiful. And help us to see that this morning. Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on a schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known